Psalm 6. Psalm 6, we've been working our way slowly through the book of Psalms. Uh, we are not going to be doing all of the book of Psalms in this uh, kind of block of time. There's 150 of them, and so that would take uh, quite some time. But we are chipping away, and we are on Psalm 6. I've titled the sermon, Get Real, uh, which will make sense in a little bit. But two weeks ago, uh, we went through Psalm 4. And Psalm 4 ends, uh, the very last verse, Psalm 4, verses 8, says, In peace I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. And I closed off our uh, sermon on Psalm 4 with a story, a powerful story, about a man named Nicholas Ridley. In case you weren't here, or in case you missed it, or in case you forget, uh, the story of Nicholas Ridley was uh, he lived... Uh, close to 500 years ago, and he uh, was facing a death sentence. He was going to be put to death for his faith. It's a pretty heavy story. Uh, And the night before he would be burned at the stake, his brother reached out to him in prison and said, can I come and just, you know, sit outside your cell? Can I come and comfort you? This is going to be a long night. And Nicholas Ridley said, I intend to go to bed and sleep as quietly tonight as I ever did. Nicholas Ridley understood this peace beyond understanding, that even through the raging storm, he could have hope. But as we come to Psalm 6 this morning, I think it's important for us all to acknowledge that, you know, sometimes we don't feel that kind of peace that Nicholas Ridley experienced. And you may be thinking, you know, what else is there to say? And, and, you know, maybe there's a piece of advice there, you know, go listen back to the sermon from two weeks ago, or listen to uh, what Josiah preached on last week. But again, we see that, you know, the Psalms and the Bible aren't, uh, they don't only give, you know, one little piece of advice uh, for a certain emotion. Because you may be here this morning, and you may know that, uh, sure, Nicholas Ridley really suffered. And you know what? My suffering, even today, pales in comparison to a man who was waiting in prison to be put to death. But there's something about something being 500 years ago that it feels sometimes fictional. Uh, it almost feels like there's, there's a disconnect between our current situation and the situation that a man like Nicholas Ridley faced. There's something more uh, tactile in the depression that I know too many of you are too well acquainted with. And so that's kind of a crux uh, of our passage as we go through this morning is the acknowledgement that pain is real. Now, trust me, I'll, I'll, spoiler alert, there's a lot of hope in this passage, and there's a lot of hope as we work through this. Uh, but this isn't, again, the kind of happy, clappy, uh, you, know, you know, you do better kind of message. Because we acknowledge that pain is real. And as I scan this room, I know many of you well, and I know that you are not immune to suffering. You know what it means to really hurt What do you do when you face a depression or a grief that words can't even describe? Well, psalms like Psalm 6 help us. These psalms of lament, they give us words when we don't have words in those dark times. And so if you aren't there today, maybe you're thinking, man, things are good, the sun is shining, you know, restrictions are lifting, Life is good. If you're there, and I don't say this to be a downer, but a bit to be a downer. If you haven't experienced this kind of pain, you will. I don't wish that on anybody. But I think more of you uh, than not know 
the feeling of the real pain that there is in the world. And so our big idea this morning, our big idea, all right, if you're going to hear one thing, it's this, our big idea. In life, there is real pain, but there is also real hope. In life, there is real pain, but there is also real hope. And so I'm going to read Psalm 6 in a minute. If you have your Bibles with you, uh, turn to Psalm 6 as we go through. If you uh, don't know where Psalms is, it's the biggest book in the Bible. And so if you just kind of take a blind stab, you, you'll have your best bet. But if you kind of split your Bible in half, you, you likely will land in the Psalms. And if you don't, just go a little bit closer to the front cover and you'll find the Psalms. And we'll be going through Psalm 6. So big number 6. And then we'll be reading verses 1 through 10. So Psalms. Uh, Psalm 6, 1 through 10. And just a few notes uh, for those that are uh, new with us or, uh, well, just a good reminder for all of us. There's a few things. Uh, first of all, every time that uh, God is referenced in Psalm 6, we see, uh, let's just look at verse 1 as an example. It says, O Lord. So we'll stop there. O Lord. We see that Lord is written in all uh, uppercase, all caps. When we see that Lord is written in all caps, uh, that is in the, the Hebrew Bible. That is where... Uh, it refers to God's personal covenant name, the name Yahweh. And so I may be flipping back and forth by using God's personal covenant name as uh, the original author intended, or uh, if I say Lord, there's nothing wrong with that either. And uh, I would encourage you to do that in your own uh, devotions and quiet time. And there's more to be said on that, but I'll say more later. And then the other is we see that this psalm, again, has a title. We see that you probably see, O oh Lord, Deliver My Life. That was added after the fact by uh, the editors and those that have compiled the Bible together. Uh, but the title right under, it says, To the choir master with stringed instruments according to the Sheminith, a psalm of David. That Sheminith word is a new one that we haven't bumped into yet. It literally trans translates to an eighth. And so there's a lot of questions on, well, what's this eighth thing about. Some people say maybe it's a musical or a liturgical term. It uh, refers to the meter. Uh, others prefer that it would refer to an eight-stringed harp or lyre. Again, it doesn't affect the way that we read it, but when we bump into words we don't know, we should ask questions. So that's the Sheminith. Uh, but let's read Psalm 6 together. O Yahweh, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. Be gracious to me, O Yahweh, for I am languishing. Heal me, O Yahweh, for my bones are troubled. My soul is also greatly troubled, but you, O Yahweh, how long? Turn, O Yahweh, deliver my life. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love. For in death there is no remembrance of you. In Sheol, who will give you praise? I am weary with my moaning, every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with my weeping. My eye wastes away because of grief. It grows weak because of all my foes. Depart from me, all you workers of evil, for Yahweh has heard the sound of my weeping. Yahweh has heard my plea. Yahweh accepts my prayer. All my enemies shall be ashamed and greatly troubled. They shall turn back and be put to shame in a moment. This is God's word. There's a lot going on in Psalm 6, but the first point, if you, have your, if you grabbed a bulletin on the way in, you'll see that there's three points as we get through here. First, real pain. Second, real prayer. Third, real hope. But we'll start with real pain. Real pain. And we get our first clue to the real pain that David, uh, the psalmist, is experiencing here. 
We don't know the exact circumstances of why he is grieving in this way, where this pain is coming from. But the first few words give us uh, a bit of a hint, or at least teach us something, uh, that pain sometimes is a consequence of sin. David says, Oh, Yahweh, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. We don't know, again, the exact circumstances of what's going on here. Maybe this is connected with some of the previous uh, psalms, like we saw where David is being pursued by his own son, uh, Absalom, trying to orchestrate a coup to overthrow the kingship. Maybe he has something, uh, maybe this is related to that. Uh, We know, too, that David was far from perfect, so maybe this has to do with uh, the disaster of a scene where uh, David spotted this woman bathing, and he's decided I, she's going to be my wife. And so he had her husband killed. So uh, that is a heavy story, uh, but it helps us to see that, you know, David is far from Mr. Squeaky Clean. He is far from Mr. Perfect. And David it would admit his own sin. Now, Josiah reminded us very well last week that the consequences of sin is serious. Sin separates us from God's blessing. Sin is rebellion. And God is justly angry at sin. And so we see even from these first few verses that pain sometimes is a consequence of sin. But I want to be clear. God is not trigger happy. He is not this reactionary character that we often paint that uh, in the smallest little instance, just bam, lightning strikes right, left, and center. Occasionally he does act swiftly. Uh, But that doesn't mean that he acts out of quick anger. Or sinful rage. Lamentations 3.33 reminds us that God does not afflict from his heart. He's not like us. And so to be clear, all sin has consequences. But not all consequences are immediate. We live in a broken world. I know I don't have to tell you that. But there is disease, pain, suffering, evil. And all of these things are consequences of sin, period. Not necessarily individual sin. But we see just in general that the focus of this psalm, it doesn't drill deep on the, again, the reason or the circumstances of the pain, but rather David's experience of the pain and his response to the pain. His experience to the pain and his response to the pain. And so what was the experience? Well, again, the first clue we can really get at is that the experience was real and the experience was serious. Look at the words David uses. He says that he's languishing. His bones are troubled. His soul is greatly troubled. This distinction between bones and soul may, uh, some people have said, okay, well, that's like body and soul. But these are kind of just words that are used to talk about the depth of this suffering. When you talk about being soaked or chilled to the bone, that's to your deep core. That's what David's talking about here. His bones are troubled. His soul is greatly troubled. And I look around, and again, I know that many of you know this. You know this pain. It's unescapable. It's like the degrees of a burn. It's not a sunburn. It is a third-degree burn to the core. Maybe it's a death of a loved one. Maybe it's that black hole of depression. Maybe it's a test revealing cancer again. Maybe it's that Negative pregnancy test, again. This is real pain. Real pain. 
David goes on to poetically and dramatically say in verses 6 and 7, I am weary with my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with my weeping. My eye wastes away because of grief. It grows weak because of all my foes. When we look at this word there for flood, uh, it's a word that really means to swim or, or to drown. And so David is saying that he is figuratively drowning in his own tears. That's big language, but this is real pain. And some have wondered, even as they've read this psalm and studied it for hundreds and uh, thousands of years, that you know, maybe David's talking about a physical disease or an ailment. And I know a lot of you know this kind of pain too. And this could be true. David, it seems like the, way he, the, the words he's using to describe his pain is that there's something tangible or tactile to it. But we see that it's the grief that David has that is carrying the heaviest weight, not purely a physical ailment. A Baptist preacher from the 19th century, Charles Spurgeon, says, The mind can descend far lower than the body, for in it there are bottomless pits. The flesh can bear only a certain number of wounds and no more, but the soul can bleed in 10,000 ways and die over and over again each hour. Again, this isn't the feel-good message maybe you were hoping for this morning, but this is reality. This is real, agonizing pain. And in part, it seems at least something to do with David's enemies. He had a lot of people against him. He was the king. But he says, my eye wastes away because of the grief. It grows weak because of all my foes. We saw in Psalm 3 that David was being attacked both literally and verbally. And this may resonate with you. You may be uh, and be all too familiar with being insulted, being ridiculed, being slandered, being gossiped about, being laughed at, maybe even laughed at for your pain, your sorrow, or your grief. Charles Spurgeon again says this, Some of you may be in great distress of mind, a distress out of which no fellow creature can deliver you. You are poor, nervous people at whom others often laugh. I can assure you that God will not laugh at you. He knows all about that sad complaint of yours, so I urge you to go to him for the experience of Many of us has taught us that the Lord is gracious and full of compassion. And so we've seen real pain. There's no denying it. Real pain. But this leads us to David's response to pain. David's response, and that gets us to real prayer, our second point. Real prayer. David makes a lot of appeals as he goes through uh, this psalm. He makes a number of different appeals to God and in many different ways. Verse 1, he pleads with God not to rebuke or discipline him out of his anger. Verse 2, he says, be gracious or be merciful to me. He says, heal me. And in verse 3, he says, how long? David doesn't know how long he will last. It's as if he pauses and he has nothing else to say. And all he can say is, how much longer? It's like he knows that he can't even save himself. So all he can do is desperately wait. It's like you're caught in a riptide at the beach and you get pulled out and swimming against the current is going to do you no good other than wear you out. And so all you can do in that moment is just say, how long? How much longer until you know, I'm not getting sucked out to sea anymore and I can find my way back in? 
That's what David's saying. How long? And a lot of you know that. A lot of you know that feeling of saying, how long, O Lord? That diagnosis that you weren't ready for, that interpersonal conflict that is out of your control when you are figuratively drowning in your own tears. Where do you turn? How do you respond? I know how I respond in those moments. Uh, And it's one of two ways. It's fight or flight. And I'm sure a lot of you are familiar with this. When the world's caving in around you, uh, likely all of us fall most naturally into one of those categories. We go, you know, knuckles up, or we, we crumble in. David models that we need to look up, that we need to go to God in real prayer. We don't need to fight, and we don't need to flight. He models that we need to look up. And so this isn't new. We know this. But this is not my first instinct. Is it yours? Because I know for me, when things are good, right, sun's shining, life's good, I don't think to go to God with desperate, real prayer. Because things are good, right? He's my kind of bailout bucket. But then when things get really bad, that's when we talk about fight or flight, that, you know, flight, you just kind of close in. You're paralyzed with the fear and the struggle So if you're anything like me, you don't go to God in those moments either. There's like this happy place in the middle where you're like facing a trouble, like, oh no, I'm lost. Uh, I need to, you know, get to this place. That's the time when maybe we're better at at praying. You know, I hope you're better at this than me. But if I'm honest, this is what it's like. And how wrong is this? Maybe though you do respond in those times of desperation. Maybe you've experienced real pain and all you could do was call out to God. I have a friend, he's not a Christian, but he told me a story. He doesn't even believe in God, but he told me a story that you know, his son encountered a really uh, traumatic situation. His son had a medical emergency and he was trying to figure out, what he, can I do this, can I do this, can I do this? And he ran out of options, and all he could do was pray. All he could do was call out to God. He was just so desperate. He was at the end of his rope. His young son was in crisis. His young son ended up being okay. But he called out to God. And I think in these kinds of situations, this guy had a better understanding of desperately running to God in real, honest prayer than often I do. Because you know, the cynic in me can even ask questions. Yeah, as I read a psalm like this, isn't it a bit audacious to go to God with these kinds of questions, make these kinds of claims, make these kinds of demands? Like, who is David to say, oh, Lord, rebuke me, not in your anger, or discipline me in your wrath? But David is very aware of his sin. It's taking a toll on him, yet he has the boldness to go to God. He asks God not to discipline him. Can we say things like that? In verse 5, we see an interesting verse. For in death there is no remembrance of you. In Sheol, who will give you praise? The word Sheol uh, literally means the grave. And so it could mean, literally, the grave. Or uh, other times it's used as a, a destination of the wicked. And so it's almost like David is giving God an ultimatum in this moment. He's saying, God, I don't know how long I've got left. How will I praise you when I'm dead? Or if you don't redeem me and I end up in Sheol, the realm of the dead, how can anyone there praise you? 
Is it okay to ask these kinds of questions, to call out to God in this way? We're backing up to verse 3, right? Common phrase in the Bible, how long, O Lord? Can we say things like that to God? Can we ask God how long until he acts? Right? What gives us the right to go to God to say things like that? You would think that his answer could very well be and would every time be, man, that's none of your business. How long? There understandably are times where God does respond in this way or in a similar way. Almost a humorous and sarcastic example, uh, he responds to Job in Job 38, verses 4 and 5. He says, Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? But just because God can answer like that every time doesn't mean that he does. God has not only made a way, but wants us to and teaches us to in his word to call out to him in prayer, prayers of adoration, praise, prayers of confession, prayers of thanksgiving, prayers of supplication, prayers of intercession. He wants us to call out to him in real prayer. And we can certainly get this wrong. Right? We can inappropriately approach God, but God knows that we are weak, sinful people. And so when I say real prayer, I don't necessarily mean right prayer. Our words don't have to be perfect. We can call out to God with all of our emotions and with all of our pain. Romans 8, 26 says, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes with us with groanings too deep for words. I don't think this is often my problem. Not because I approach God appropriately every time, but because in my desperation I often get my fists up or I shut down. I don't even run to him. And so before we, you know, criticize David or criticize others for like, oh man, can you really talk to God like that? Well, maybe we should talk to God, period, and then we can cross that bridge. God doesn't say that we need to get our act together to run to him. One of my favorite Tim Keller quotes is this. He says, the only person, the only person who dares wake up a king at 3 a.m. for a glass of water is a child. We have that kind of access. The only person who dares wake up a king at 3 a.m. for a glass of water is a child. We have that kind of access. You take that illustration wherever you want. You think of this old-time king. If anyone came and said, hey, king, I want some water. See ya. You won't meet that guy again. But the only person who dares wake up a king at 3 a.m. for a glass of water is a child. We have that kind of access. If you are a Christian, you can be confident that not only has God saved you out of the mess that you've made of your life, but he's done that not from a distance, but by adopting you as his child. Galatians 4, 4 through 7 says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. 
and if a son, then an heir through God. We've talked about this here before too, but that word Abba is uh, not a distant, cold you know, father. It's like saying dad. And so we've been adopted as God's children because of the gospel. The gospel literally means good news. If you've heard the word gospel, maybe you think it's a type of music, maybe you don't know anything about gospel. The gospel is the story of God redeeming his people. The fact that God is perfect and righteous and holy and he created people and from the very start, we blew it. We turned our own way. We said, okay, sure, God's the king, but I want to be king of my own life. As we turn to our own way, we've sinned, we've rebelled, and the consequence of rebellion is death. God is perfect. He can't coexist with the evil hearts that we have. And so we were separated from God. There was no, this chasm that could not be bridged, but it could be bridged because God in his mercy sent his son into the world, sent Jesus to live a perfectly righteous life, the life that you and I could never live, to live that life that we could never live, yet die the death that we deserve. And he died that death so that we could be made right with God, so that when God looks at us, he sees his son. And Jesus bore the weight of sin on his shoulders. Jesus defeated death. He rose on the third day, demonstrating that that wrath that God had, that, that rebuking, that discipline, because of the wrath of God, that had been satisfied in full, paid in full. So that's the good news, that there is a way that we could be made right with God. Now David lived long before Jesus came around. And so, as Paul wrote in Galatians, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. David didn't have the hindsight that we have today to see how the story unfolded. Yet even with this glimmer of hope, the promises that God would send somebody, that he would send Jesus, David still had hope. He appeals to God who saves him in his desperation. This reveals real hope. So we've seen real pain. There's no denying there's real pain in the world. We've seen David go to God in real honest prayer, messy prayer. And now we see our third point, real hope. Real hope. David appeals to God with real prayer. And this hinges on God's promises to redeem. Verse four says, turn O Yahweh, deliver my life. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love. As Josiah mentioned last week, uh, even though this was written originally in Hebrew, we don't need to be able to read Hebrew to understand all that's going on. But every once in a while, there are some Hebrew words that are helpful for us to be able to uh, interpret or to get you know, a grander vision, you know, to, to give us a wide-angle view of what's going on here. So uh, I already mentioned the one. The name, the personal name, Yahweh. Well, again, when you read the Bible and you see LORD, likely, in all caps, that's where the Bible, uh, the translators have translated it to LORD in all caps, but that's where the author used the name Yahweh. David doesn't use an impersonal word for God, this cold kind of word. He uses God's personal covenant name, the name Yahweh. And as I read this a few weeks ago, Dr. Ian Valancourt writes this, the name, this name, has been used in praise of God since the earliest days of his people. 
It was used by the patriarchs when they addressed God, and it was used by God when he revealed himself to the patriarchs. However, the full significance of this name was revealed in the exodus from Egypt when Yahweh redeemed his people from slavery. Therefore, the name Yahweh is wrapped up in the covenant commitment God has with his people. It is the personal name of God that reminds us, reminds us of his personal commitment to his people's salvation. And so by using this name, David is appealing to God's covenant love, the fact that he will redeem his people. He has redeemed them. He brought them out of Egypt and that he will redeem. So that's our first word, Yahweh. All right, this is a good lesson. for Here's our, our Hebrew for the day. And then our second one, Josiah taught us this word last week, the word hesed. Hesed. It's translated in the ESV that I'm preaching out of this morning as steadfast love. Steadfast love. Again, uh, Valancourt writes, in its Old Testament context, this great covenant word reminds us that the God who purchased his people out of slavery is tender towards them, is faithful to them, and will never let them go. So all this is wrapped up in just that one verse, verse four. All this richness of appealing to God with his personal covenant name, which in and of itself is just wrapped up in his faithfulness throughout history. And then this word hesed, which again is God's steadfast love. And so we can read that uh, just as, turn, O Lord, deliver my life, save me for the sake of your steadfast love. There's so much jammed in there. Turn, O Yahweh, deliver my life, save me for the sake of your hesed. This is real hope. We've seen real pain. You know real pain. We see David go to God in real, honest, desperate prayer. But there's real hope. And this is what David appeals to. He appeals to God's past faithfulness. But he doesn't stop there. Because we see a switch flip between verses 7 and verses 8. So verse 7, my eye wastes away because of grief. It grows weak because of all my foes. It's like we've ramped down, 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 down. And then here, depart from me, all you workers of evil, for Yahweh has heard the sound of my weeping. Yahweh has heard my plea. Yahweh accepts my prayer. All my enemies shall be ashamed and greatly troubled. They shall turn back and be put to shame in a moment. David is deeply afflicted. Deeply afflicted. But he turns and makes bold proclamations against his enemies, but rooted in God's, not just past, but God's present work. Look at this kind of threefold thing he says. He says, for Yahweh has heard the sound of my weeping. Yahweh has heard my plea. Yahweh accepts my prayer. We see it's like almost like this ramping up, like a good, better, best. The statements that David uses, they build on each other. Not only has God heard me weeping, it's like he's walking through the forest and you hear a kid crying. Not only has he heard my weeping, he has heard my actual plea, my real, honest, desperate prayers. Not only has he heard, just heard the prayer and listened and said, okay, cool, man. He accepts my prayer. And this word here, translated to accept, holds so much more weight than simply just takes it. He accepts it. He approves of David's real, honest prayer. And so this ramping up, David appeals to God's past covenant faithfulness by using his personal covenant name and talking about his steadfast love. And he appeals to God's future, uh, present and future work that God hears him when he's crying. 
that God hears the actual pleas that are being made and that God accepts them. And so we see that this whole psalm, 10 little verses, there's a lot packed in here. But it begins with David desperately calling out to God because as verse 3 puts it, he's greatly troubled, greatly troubled. But Psalm 6 ends with David's enemies being, as verse 10 puts it, greatly troubled. From the very beginning, when sin entered the world, God made promises, and he kept promises to redeem his people. And he did this finally through the work of Jesus on the cross. If you're not a Christian and you're here with us this morning, first of all, I'm glad that you're here. And I know that you know real pain. You know real pain. You know that life is not, you know, all sunshine and rainbows. And I want you to know that the Bible doesn't sugarcoat things. It talks about real pain. It's not silent on the grief that can be experienced in this life. Again, just look at David's words. I am weary with my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with weeping. This isn't like that one manly tear that comes down when, you know, the bride comes down the aisle. This is, you know, ugly crying. There is real pain, and the Bible is not silent on it. And Jesus did not die for everybody that can get their act together. He died for sinners. He died for you, and he died for me. That's the good news. We could never do enough good to earn our own salvation. We are not righteous, not one of us. But the good news is that we can be made righteous because Jesus was righteous, yet died in our place, and he rose, defeating death, something that we could never do. The only reason why we don't need to be ashamed and greatly troubled, why we have any right to call out to God to say, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath, the only way that we can do that is because Jesus was ashamed and greatly troubled on our behalf. And so if you are tired, if you're tired of running, from just one fix to another. Or you've maybe even given up in your search for real hope, for real hope. Turn from putting your trust in yourself. And like David, go to God, put your trust in him. Appeal to his past faithfulness. He hears you when you pray. Run to him. Trust in him. Turn from this old way of living and trust him to be your only hope. If you want to hear more about this, please come talk to me or talk to almost anybody else in the room. They would love to tell you more about the hope that can be found in Jesus. And Christian, this morning I want to remind you to trust in the real hope that you know. Because through the good and the bad, when things are going well or when you're flooding your bed with tears, run to God even with those desperate, messy, and even audacious prayers. Appeal to God's past faithfulness. You are a child of God. You have been saved. You are a sinner saved by grace. And so you can cry out to him. You can use his name wrapped up in his covenant faithfulness. You can appeal to his steadfast love that from the beginning of time, from the beginning of when humanity blew it, he made promises 
and he's kept promises to redeem his people. Know that he hears your weeping. He hears your desperate pleas, and he accepts your prayer. Don't be afraid to run to your king. He will never laugh at you. You are loved more than you could ever know. Call out to him for that glass of water at 3 a.m. You are his child, and you have that kind of access. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you have made a way for us to be made right with you, that even though we live in this broken world and our hearts in and of themselves are abysmally broken, that we face real pain, yet we can call out to you with real honest prayer. And that there may be times when we sit and we say, how long? But we know that there is real hope. You have been faithful. You are faithful and you will be. And so God, for each of us this morning, I pray that you would help us to stop trying to steer our own ship, to stop trying to run our own life, but that we would trust in you completely. And for those who don't know you, Father, I pray that you would work in their hearts, that we wouldn't collectively be silent to the prodding that you do on our hearts. We thank you for your grace and the glorious gospel that saves and transforms. Pray in Jesus' name, amen.